Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Mitchell Cushman, a theatrical director and writer who recently won a Dora for the acclaimed Toronto production of Jerusalem at Streetcar Crow's Nest. He's also the artistic director of the immersive theater company Outside the March, and their latest project, The Tape Escape, opens this Thursday, July 4th, in the site of the recently shuttered Queen Video in the Annex in Toronto. Mitchell picked High Fidelity, John Cusack and friends Steve Pink and D.V. DiVincenti's 2000 follow-up to their 1997 hitman high school reunion thriller Gross Point Blank, a different film, but one that's similarly curious about ostensible adults acting like teenagers and in a very different direction. This one's an adaptation of Nick Hornby's 1995 novel about an obsessive record store clerk paging through his past breakups with the action relocated from London to Chicago. Directed by Stephen Frears and featuring a killer cast that includes Jack Black, Todd Luizzo, Tim Robbins, Joan Cusack, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Natasha Gregson-Wagner, Lily Taylor, Sarah Gilbert, and the extremely underrated Swedish actor Eben Yale, it's a smart, funny film that now serves as a pleasantly nostalgic window to an era where record stores were still a good investment of time, money, and passion. That was nice, wasn't it? This is someone else's movie. So I, I'm 33. So uh, like when I, I was in high school, I graduated high school in 2004. And a, a lot of, and I watched a lot of movies in, in high school. So I'd say like a lot of my film touchstones and favorite movies came out between like 1997 and, and 2004, sort of in that window and also during that time I worked at a movie theater for a while and I worked at a blockbuster video oh nice so High Fidelity sort of sits squarely within that era uh, but, but also I never worked in a record store or a CD store but having worked in in a yeah in a blockbuster and other customer service related things I connected a lot with the experience in High Fidelity sure. I've also been someone my whole life who's made different kinds of li- lists either mentally or physically <laughs> I'm a big Nick Hornby fan so I, yeah it's, I think to me, it's one of the few film adaptations of the book that at least feels like equally successful and somewhat on his own terms. Like, yeah, oh, very much so. I yeah. mean, there's this and about a boy. Those are really the right. two that sort of get his rhythms right. Yeah, and but the, I don't even mean just of Nick Hornby. Like, it's it's rare. I think oh. you find a movie that, like, yeah, I don't know. There's, it seems to exist just as beautifully and validly as a movie is as a book. So they don't sort of like normally. I'm like pulled in one direction or the other, but they both seem. Yeah, I think maybe because the. Um, the medium it's about you can experience in a different way when you're watching something and reading something so it sort of earns yeah, its keep yeah. in, that, in that way and it is the um, the weird synthesis too of, of John Cusack's kind of obsessive screen presence from movies like Grossman Blank or Tapeheads sure. or the ones where he is most himself the ones where he's working with his collaborators yeah like DiVincentis and Steve Pink and High Fidelity kind of perfects it in a way yes. because he's not the hero very much. That was one of the things when I re- when I went back and rewatched it over the last couple of days. Uh, I think every time I watch it, I think probably when I watched it in high school, like I, you know, I, I was a little bit less critical of his character in the movie. <laughs> and yeah, w- watching it now, there's actually very little to like about the character aside from his obsession with different pop culture touchstones. And that it's it's amazing that the character is sort of built out of that. And that alone is enough to carry it through and make you form some sort of attachment to him. Yeah, I think the appeal of, of both the film and Hornby's book is that you can read it and think, well, I'm not that guy. Yeah. He's the worst case scenario. Well, he's not the worst case scenario, but he is absolutely the worst version of that sort of uh, narrator. Yeah. Someone who is mildly self-aware, but not really willing to work on it. Just kind of content to coast and... and uh, isolate everything, and now you know we have the we have social media where where Rob would thrive, I right. think, yeah. to the point where he'd never get any work done. Yeah, it, it um, the way that they treat some of the customers who come into their store, browbeating them for their in, inferior tastes, does sort of feel like trolling in an age before social media. Yeah, and Rob wouldn't see himself as a troll. He just see himself as a very discerning. I mean, that's why we get. Um, we get Jack Black and Todd Louisa, yeah, right? Those totally. guys are his yeah. worst selves. Sure. The Spock and McCoy versions of Kirk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the, 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 in terms of the, there being very little self-reflection, I feel like the trio of them together 
it just creates this echo chamber where it's like, no, everyone's wired this way. So, yeah. 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 I mean, if this is your world, they're like future incels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's definitely the, the darkest, Im- darkest implications of it for sure. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. I, I, I felt watching, rewatching the movie, I found myself thinking a lot more about, yeah, the, it's, it's take on different gender constructs than I definitely ever thought about when I watched it in high school. Yeah. No, it's, it's a, it's a really, prescient work ultimately and 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 i just find i I find this combination of people filmmakers authorship all of it just it shouldn't be as um as solid as it is yeah because it's it's like it's a messy narrative yeah it shouldn't work as a as a film because it's so episodic and and choppy but finds a flow like the, the idea that the top five list just excuses all of these things it yeah. lays it right out the fact that he's talking to camera that he's yeah. addressing uh, his own I was reading something where Nick Hornby said that when he first watched the movie he felt like John Cusack was reading his book to him <laughs> that was a, an interesting way of putting it and it, really... it does feel like the, the style of the film and in a way that maybe shouldn't work but does it allows it to translate what Hornby does best as a writer because they are able to just pull out that prose and yeah and speak it directly to camera. Yeah. I, watching it this time made me think of, weirdly enough, of Nora Ephron's structure, where yeah. like her genius is finding insul- uh, her genius is finding ways to insert monologues that are just her essays yeah. into the mouths of characters. And Hornby's like the book is that. It's just a, a wave after wave after wave of of I guess it's insight. I mean, there's definitely knowledge being thrown around, but it's written in a way that we understand that Rob is not the most reliable narrator and certainly has no sense of himself. Yeah. The movie finds a way to translate that just by sheer manic delivery, I yeah. think. Like, just having having Cusack, having Rob talk over everyone. He talks to us as if as he talks to the guys he works with in his store. And so we immediately get cast as people who sort of see the world in as exactly the neurotic way as he does. And... Yeah. and I think we we both uh, are attracted and repelled by, by that as the movie continues. Yeah, and it's the idea of gatekeeper uh, culture and how this is actually bizarre. Uh, John McClane from the the Beta Band has done this podcast, and oh, so wow. now we're coming weirdly full circle. Yeah, uh, yeah, I love. Just, it. I mean, there's there's a, several scenes in that movie, and that's definitely one of them where uh, I know far more about about film than I do about music, so I often. I often get a lot of my music tastes from the movies that yeah, I watch, and so absolutely. a song, a song like like the, the Beta Band song in the film, yeah, it directly sends me to the movie whenever whenever I hear it. And there's a number of musical touchstones in the movie I feel that way about. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, my my wife and I were having this conversation a few days ago, and it just I just happened to know some awful pop song from 2003. It's like, oh, it was in like four movies. Sure, uh, it wasn't All Star, but it was one of those. Yeah, it was sure. right around that era. And so, yeah. yeah, no, that was everywhere, and in. in bad commercial cinema yeah uh, I know way more about certain bands who sure. don't that I don't even care about I just yeah. know the music and um, and having it filtered through the persona of someone who is uh, assumes himself to be the smartest person in the room and the most knowledgeable and is constantly defending that against a series of I mean the movie we're seeing Rob's perspective so I you know Tim Robbins doesn't really look like that no. I'm sure in yeah. the scene sure. together but you have this sense that the only way he can have any sense of self-worth is by putting himself on top of a pile of things that only he understands. Yeah. Like, you, I, I love blank more than you love blank sure. kind of thing. There's that, I mean, I think of the sequence where he's uh, trying to heal himself by uh, reorganizing his record collection autobiographically. Uh, yeah, and what, what he finds soothing about that. And... Uh, as a way of processing his own life through these, yeah, vinyl artifacts that he's picked up along the way. I don't know. It's if if the character has any introspection, it's that. But it's it also feels like such a defense mechanism. But it, yeah, yeah. And the women in his life, which is ostensibly the reason we're watching this movie. Yeah. Uh, they see right. They they don't see right through him at first. But every one of them. That the the great. It's something you never see in romantic comedies. Uh, is perspective. Right. Is the idea that people don't necessarily want to see him again. Yeah. That he is convinced that, you know, if I talk to these sure. women... And they're all like, that's the last thing I want to do. Yeah. Or, yeah. 
Yeah, it's such a great device. As a, as a book, it's more tragic because you can give it more weight. Mm-hmm. And in a film, you see their faces. Yeah. And you see, like, Catherine Zeta-Jones just gets sure. the fuck away from me. Yeah. She's she's so good in that one. Yeah, I, 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 it, 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 uh, and the, and, uh, and the different kinds of relationships and the different ways relationships can go wrong, uh, I think the spread of the spread of the past relationships we see of his, yeah, they really run that run that gamut in, a, in yeah. an interesting way. Yeah, I mean, you can play with the joke of him being a naive kid and having yeah. people be younger, but it really is it gets excoriating. In the yeah, end. it just keeps coming back to what a failure he is as a as a partner as a person. Yeah, um, I guess also also I think the sort of metaphor of um, the way you know always always trying to hear or acquire the new song or the the long lost song the sort of cut of song you never heard before and the way in which he loses interest in his relationships and when he feels himself towards the end of the film starting to make that mixtape for the the music journalist and, and recognizing that yeah he's just trying to continue to hop hop from rock to rock it uh yeah it just lands very nicely yeah it's a it's a it's a very smart movie. I'm just trying to think. And I, I, I uh, also used to work in a video store, and so I... I where, did, where did you used to work? Uh, I worked at a place called Jumbo Video, oh, yeah. up in Steels and Cactus, sure. like the north yeah. end of nowhere. It was yeah. across the road from my, where I lived when I was a kid. Uh, and that would have been like 87, 88. It was after film school, so the summer of 88. Uh, I was there for a couple of years, and it was one of these giant you know it was a, it was the blockbuster competition yeah and it we would get these boxes of stuff from other stores when we were setting up it was just like shipped in from every other province from every other borough and i i was the only one because i was a nerd uh I, I was the only one who knew uh which films were banned in ontario because they were <laughs> still doing that so we would get these horror movies like reanimator yeah. and dawn of the dead and, and the cuts were the ones that you couldn't have here yeah and so we had to send them back to head office that was the whole like, wow it was it was illegal to physically possess a copy yeah let alone rent it um but that was my job when we were setting up the store and just because i i I think it was like reanimator. Oh my god, I haven't seen this cut. So would you, you'd you'd watch it to see what? Oh, absolutely. Was, yeah. No, I mean you could just tell from the packaging, sure. but I would still take it home. Of and course, make sure. Yeah. Uh, so I got to watch all these fan movies. Um, I'm sure the statute is up on that. But the but the feel of knowing like the the electricity that comes from knowing something that no one else does. Sure. That's my whole career. That's that's that was the start of it. I think. And there really is a gateway between. I mean, ideally, it's like yeah, you you get out of school, you work in one of these places that is, you know, exists as a repository of film or music or book knowledge and then it can translate you towards some sort of creative career or you can get stuck there yeah and i I think the tension between those two things is uh i find very interesting i know that at a certain age when i was in high school working at a video store represented the the fulfillment of some sort of dream oh yeah and then i worked i worked at um i worked at theater books for for a year um after i got out of my master's uh and i I had grown up going to theater books and I and it always seemed like a dream job to work there. And then I, and they only had like, you know, three staff, what, what, at least when I worked there, which was sort of towards the end of its time. And it was such a hotly contested job within the theater community that I remember joking, but kind of seriously that I had to go and get two theater degrees so that I could, so that I could work at theater books. And, uh, it, it, it was really valuable, but I, I, I do feel like something is fundamentally being lost when all of that stuff moves, when all of that shopping experience moves online. Oh, uh, yeah. The, in terms of community, in terms of, tra- like, um, transfer of information, term, the, the, the show I'm working on right now, the, the tape escape, the, the subtitle of it is a, a love letter to the lost art of browsing, and that's really what we're trying to celebrate. And ideally, it's trying to pay homage to the opposite experience that you see in High Fidelity, not, not where the people who work there are trying to wield their knowledge to make everyone around them feel small, but to impart it and to turn people on to things that they haven't been turned on to before, which we can all remember happening ourselves, especially at a young and impressionable age. Oh, that yeah. just opens up the world for you. Yeah, I mean, the idea of curation going away, yeah. that's, that's the real thing. Like that, I was complaining earlier about all the, uh, the the streaming services that require you to immediately every month drop whatever you're doing and just say, this is coming out, this is coming sure. out. But that's the kind of the only function I can perform as a critic, right? right. That, that has any real purpose yeah. uh, is just telling people what to see yeah uh, it just gets exhausting when you have to scramble to do it before someone else beats you to it but yeah. the um, 
when I was working at, at Jumbo and then subsequently at another video store, a little indie place that opened next to it uh, and died very quickly, uh, what we did was we tried to guide people to the good stuff. I mean, yeah. that's what that's what anybody should want from this experience. But then, of course, you also realize, and, and when you're 18, it doesn't matter that other people have different opinions than you. It's just like, no, the thing is the best horror movie we have. Sure. You should watch the thing. Uh and then you learn about taste and you learn about if you like that then maybe you like this and you, you sort of have to finesse the recommendations I mean I'm sure you went through that yourself the- what used to frustrate me about working at Blockbuster was because you know there would have been a flip but it was an independent video store but 80 to 90% of the real estate on the shelf space was all just new releases and sure, it would yeah. be the whole wall of whatever Eddie Murphy movie just came out uh, and people who'd come in and their particular desire was okay, what came out with this week I want to and it was always so confusing to me with the whole sort of wealth of 100 years of cinema yeah. there why the most important question was what's the new thing that came out and that seemed to trump it all for, for certain people and, and so I definitely felt like the way I was wired was more conducive to the kind of video store where it was a curated experience uh, where the staff picks plays a large part where you have things organized by director and you could get excited about a filmmaker and then work your way through their whole canon. Or I used to, I did my undergraduate in Hall in Halifax and there was an amazing video store there um, called Video Difference and they had all the AFI top 100 on a shelf basically so you could work your way through it and with like a basically a guide and I was always a sucker for things like that. And you would have been the age of DVD had already started, right? So when I worked at Blockbuster, which was 2003, 2004, it was like half the store was VHS and half the store was DVD. So we were still using the rewinder, but also the DVDs had these like um, like locking mechanisms so you wouldn't steal them. Right. So it was oh just God. a lot of different uh, equipment to try to uh, keep both on the shelves simultaneously. And... and different ratios of like how many VHS could fit on a shelf versus how many DVDs. Yeah. Uh, oh. On the, 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 the tape escape, which is set in the late nineties. So it's all VHS. We've got 5,000 VHS in the store uh, that we acquired mostly from a, a recycle center, but queen video bequeathed us all their shelves, uh, which were originally built to hold VHS. So there's yeah. something quite full circle. And I like to think that, you know, queen video used to be all VHS. Then they got rid of them. They probably sold them off. Those people ultimately probably, sold them off or gave them away or threw them out. They ended up at this recycle center. We took them and now we're bringing them back to clean video. That's how I like to think about it anyway. It's not the red propeller. Yes, it is. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Probably got some of my stuff in there. Did you give your VHS there? I got rid of several hundred when we moved. Yeah, they boxed ago. them all up to us and yeah, and a couple different shipments and I think we're happy that we're giving Covers them a new life. It? Yeah. yeah, uh-huh. yeah. That's, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pass that on to my, my team. We, yeah. That's wonderful. Um, Get, let, let me know one of the more obscure VHS used to have. We'll I'm see. trying to think of it. Yeah. yeah. I have, I had so many. Um, the great so, thing about acquiring them that way is that it's completely randomized. So there's so, yeah, so much amazing stuff there that if we were looking for, we would never have found. And yeah, like there's some, a whole bunch of beta tapes that we got to there's this beautiful collection of marvel movies i'm not sure exactly what year they're from but they have these beautiful illustrated covers and they're yeah old old animated oh, okay. things um but they look yeah they look like an art piece these nine or ten ten yeah beta tapes with the uh, yeah old old marvel illustrations on them that's amazing yeah. i i think i might still have one or two betamax tapes somewhere just because they're so weird that i couldn't part totally yeah th- those are those will probably be one of the ones i hang on to yeah but this this um coffee table thing has some VHS tapes in there that oh, yeah. just couldn't the stuff that never showed up anywhere else stuff sure. that wasn't replicated and, and again this is where we come back to High Fidelity and talking about the B-sides that you've never seen anywhere yeah, else that's right uh, to the point where when I was looking at trivia points about the film I found someone uh, has devoted themselves to arguing that the versions of songs that are played in the film are not the versions of songs that would appear on the album really? Uh, yeah there's a The River has never been the first cut of any album release of The River wow so when Rob plays that it's a lie <laughs> Uh, according to the and do they think that's intentional or unintentional? I think uh, I think it's one of those things where Stephen Frears was working to deadline in in post and just didn't care. Um, sure, but also that was supposed to be Dylan, right? Because it is in the book. And, yeah, and right. I mean, most a lot of the mo- music references are different in the in the mm-hmm. book and in the movie, as they should be, right? Yeah. Because it's moving from an English to an American context. Totally, yeah, but um, the the core. And that's the other weird conflict, too, in, in, in translating it. You have an Englishman directing an American version of an English novel. Yeah. And that's weird. But it works. Yeah. Because the same way that I was talking to Ari Aster this morning about Midsummer, 
and how mostly the Americans are played by English actors uh, yeah. or are, you know, British actors, um, Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner and, and uh, Will Poulter, all playing Americans. Yeah. William Jackson Harper is uh, the only American in the film playing an American. And it's this weird thing where, because specifically that film is about Americans in Sweden on vacation or on a, on a trip, you're getting British actors giving you their impression of what an American on vacation is like, which is the way they encountered most Americans for most of their lives. Sure. And it's this weird loop that produces something clear, yeah. like something that everybody gets instantly. It's like, oh yeah, that is right. That's that weird apologetic entitlement where you're sorry, but you're still going to do it. Yeah, if you're outside of it, you gain a different perspective. And, yeah. yeah, and Freer somehow finds that. Like This movie would not have been the same if an American filmmaker had made it, I think. I mean, I, th- and I think sh- Chicago just feels like such a perfect setting for it. I mean, I watched the movie before I read the book, so okay. when I did read the book, it was more, yeah, trying to then transpose that onto a London context, even though sort of I know, you know, the, the, the original transposition goes the other way around. Yeah. And now I'm just thinking about all the great video stores I loved in London that are gone. Yeah. Uh, and record stores, too, Christ. I mean, the last time I was there in March, I went to the last HNV. Yeah. The I- day before it closed. Yeah, it's funny how we now get nostalgic for those things like HMV and Blockbuster, which once upon a time, you know, I think we thought were the enemies of these sort of oh, yeah. smaller independent, oh, they independent were. things. I mean, they yeah. absolutely were. But then, yeah. But now they... now they, it's left. They, yeah, and and when they go, they become nostalgic touchstones as well. Yeah. To the point where Blockbuster shows up in Captain Marvel. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody number, in the theater goes, aw. A number of people, yeah, pointed that out to me. It's like, if you wanted to find the 90s, that's, that's, that's where you'd go. Uh, there's this great Twitter account called The Last Blockbuster that uh, I don't actually think is affiliated with the one Blockbuster that does still exist, it's which like I think is in Alaska, Alaska right? yeah. yeah. But it it purports as if it's like the staff of a Blockbuster video uh, sending out tweets dealing with being a video store in the age of Netflix, and it's it's very funny. Oh, it's a heartbreaker. One of the first things I wrote uh, for money was uh, was a cover story for the Toronto Star Video Magazine about being a video clerk. I think it's actually called I Was a Teenage Video Store Clerk. And uh, it's very dumb. Uh, but it does have the same sort of seed of sure. high fidelity of all of it. Because it's just about... It's about being the guy who is behind the counter instead of on the other side of it. It's, it's about be, feeling vaguely superior, but also being legitimately exhausted by the people who wander in and are sure that you know we were hiding a copy of the Rocky Horror Picture Show behind the counter. Right. It's like, nobody has that. Sure. It's just not out. Yeah. No, come on. What if I gave you more money? And then you'd have this... And it, it's like the one person who's doing that is the one person you're dealing with that day. But there's others. It's not just one guy. Sure. It's an endless... And people end up taking up a disproportionate amount of your time. Yeah, and, uh, with dumb questions. Yeah. I had a conversation once with someone who was absolutely sure that his uh, his VCR wasn't a VCR. But he insisted, no, it's no, it's it's something else. It's something else. What do you think it was? In the end, we realized it was VHS. We just could not make the leap wow. conceptually. But it was a half-hour conversation of yeah. walking through the store and looking for tapes that would fit. It's like, well, this will fit a VCR. No, 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 no. Wow. And yeah, I think in the end, he took Willy Wonka. I'm still not sure why. I also working at a blockbuster. When I fantasized about working at an independent store, it was very much the um, the idea that okay, if I work. If I worked somewhere less corporate, we could just watch movies all day, yeah. as opposed to the sort of coming attractions thing that Blockbuster would play. Oh right, sure. I would get fifteen minute breaks, and I would go over to Subway, get the sub, maybe twenty minute breaks, go get a sub quickly, take a tape off the shelf, go into the tiny little back room where there was a tiny TV, watch like ten minutes of a movie, not rewind it, put it back on the shelf, and hope that no one rented it. So that <laughs> the next day I could watch another installment of yeah. So there's like three or four movies that I vividly remember unfolding to me in that way which I mean I gotta ask what's it called uh, I think it's called Stuck on Me it's like not it's like not a very good I think it's like a Farley Brothers movie where like oh, they're the, like conjoined Great Kinnear that's Stuck right. on You yeah. Stuck on You yeah I don't know why that's the first one that comes to mind but yeah that's something you could watch in chunks yeah that makes sense fair enough yeah I think it was just yeah what, what, what caught my eye that day I also went, went through a whole phase of uh, working my way through the the entire Woody Allen catalog, and so I think a, a couple of those fell fell on that. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you could probably get away with like bananas, or the sure. early ones can, can yeah. break down pretty easily. Yeah. 
Uh, I never had the opportunity. I worked midnight shifts, though, so you could watch a movie. Mm. Um, and because I was a teenage idiot, I watched horror movies, and so sure. when a customer would bang on the window, it would freak you out. So when you worked midnight, was the store open? Or? Yeah, it was a 24-hour store. Oh, wow. Uh, that didn't last. I think it was only for about a year. Yeah. But we were supposed to be, like, Blockbuster wasn't, so right. we were. Right, uh, It was everything Blockbuster wasn't. That was the corporate decision. Yeah. And yeah. so I guess maybe there'd be some people in the middle of the night who, I don't know. There always were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two to six was pretty dead, but you would never go an hour without somebody. Yeah. And it would just be people driving or not sleeping or coming home from work or going to work and picking something up. So we had a 24-hour, literal 24-hour policy, 3, 3 a.m. to 3 a.m. Whenever you rented it, it wasn't right. back by six. I see. Right. And that was ridiculous how to keep track of it yeah well it was all it was computerized so that was easy but what would be the worst was somebody showing up at 5 a.m uh with a 2 a.m return it's like well you kind of have to pay the late fee and and 5 a.m is not a time you want to argue with anybody about anything is someone else going to rent this in the last three hours Yeah. yeah and you can't feel bad it did happen once somebody really wanted some i think it was the legend of billy jean Maybe? No, no, no. It was the other one. It was um, the other Christian Slater movie around that time. Oh, I can't remember what it was. Shit. It wasn't Cuffs. Cuffs hadn't come out yet. It makes me think of that episode of Seinfeld where George is supposed to read Breakfast at Tiffany's and he and then watches his book club and then he wants to watch the movie but then it's out. So he's at the video store and he sort of gained like peeks at the screen and sees who has it and then shows up at the That's right. Shows up at the the house and is just like I I need to... uh, yeah, can I watch this movie with you? So he's just like watching it with this random family. But I thought about that a lot working <laughs> on this tape escape project in terms of the way that I think what fascinates me about specifically a rental store, these tapes that pass through different people's hands. Yeah. And if there's sort of a way to unlock the stories of what these tapes have seen in a way as they've traveled in and out of different people's hands and lives and VCRs back on the shelf. That is something that just doesn't happen anymore right how do you put yourself i mean i suppose having done it having worked in that world i could probably also like you can get yourself back in yeah but how you're obviously looking to attract people who have never had this experience right Right. like what what's the hook how do you get them in i mean i think we're we're living through a real nostalgia boom Mm -hmm. um partially because we're i think really hungry for live and tactile experiences as everything becomes mediated, recorded, watch at home. Uh, And as an immersive theater company, that sort of the live and the tactile, creating active experiences for audiences, that's always the the touchstone for us. Um, And so, yeah, this, when we, when we started, when it became apparent that video stores were a very endangered species and also as a site-specific company and we, lo- we look to animate spaces that people will have some visceral relationship with, uh, video stores felt like a great, uh, a great application for that. I never thought we'd be so, it, it would be so serendipitous that we'd actually be able to inhabit a real video store that people have a lot of personal memory and connection with, which yeah. is Queen Video where we ended up. Um, but I think that even a generation of people who wouldn't be familiar with VHS, uh, not, I think '90s nostalgia is very intoxicating right now. I think that's you know Netflix, the thing that has put so much of this out of business. Ironically, so much of that runs off of '90s style and and nostalgia, right? Yeah. It, they because they're it's all geared at a demographic of people who are in their 30s and 40s who who grew up with that stuff so i mean you know stranger things just being one example yeah full uh, house is back yeah right. exactly it, nothing nothing goes away forever now so we want our cast though to be of the age where people would work in video stores so like people you know late teens early 20s and so by and large the cast are people who didn't actually grow up with the same yeah, touchstones yeah. that the show is featuring so that's been an interesting uh education process along the way yeah i mean i had developed this unconscious i could i could probably still do it uh just this way of checking to make sure the video the vhs tape worked you know the way you put your finger on the notch snap it up make sure it closed again it was one of those things it's like oh yeah this is muscle memory now this is just what happens so how do you idly playing with a rubik's cube or something exactly so how do you teach that to people who've never had the experience the first thing we're doing with our cast is having them find their favorite movies in the store and creating a staff pick section. Oh, nice. And so a lot of their experience will be based on 
the store is going to be, it's also kind of a fantastical video store. So the categories are not going to be comedy drama, but they're all arranged, you know, well, like that autobiographical thing in, in high fidelity, they're yeah. all, they're all, they're all arranged through, uh, yeah, different leaps of fancy and leaps of faith. And the employees are, are playing a big part in that. So they're going to be the, their psychologies are going to be embedded in the way the store is arranged. And I think that, that'll develop part of that part of that connection um yeah we, we we want the store to really feel like something you could get joyfully lost in and so each category in and of itself is sort of a little joke or a riddle or a mystery that you could spend time teasing out and, and interacting with and you've got multiple story threads or multiple narratives yeah so it's um three completely separate experiences each themed off of a different film genre so there's a romance story, which is called Love Without Late Fees. Uh, and it, it it's a large branching narrative piece. So there's about 60 different scenes, and depending on the choices that the audience makes and how they solve the puzzles, they see different content. Um, and basically, the concept is that the store has started a dating service for single people in its customer database. And the system will pair you up with someone else and give you six free movie rentals. And if you choose the right movies and you watch the right movies at the right time, then you'll get to happily ever after. And basically depending on what movies you land on, you it either has a positive or a negative effect on the relationship. Okay. And because the whole project is also escape room inspired, at each juncture the, the group, people do this in groups of four to eight people, um, each puzzle, if you solve it correctly, you deduce the, the right movie that these two characters, Matt and Sarah, should rent next and then things go in a more positive direction in their relationship. And if you don't solve it in the allotted time limit, your experience continues, but their relationship now has to deal with the consequences of <laughs> watching the wrong movie at the wrong time and what that has uh, and what that leads to. Um, so it's, it'll be a unique experience for everyone who does it because there's so many different permutations. Right. And at one point, your group will split up and, and explore different pathways of, of the Matt and Sarah universe, basically. So what is the wrong movie at the wrong time? I mean, just in terms sure. of example. Well... So a central, this won't give away too much, the, a central split early on in the story is that uh, the character of Sarah, she works at a software company, she works at IBM, okay. uh, and but she's an aspiring musician. And a, a central choice for her is whether or not she should, whether or not she should accept a promotion at work, which will be financially lucrative, but lock her into to this short-term thing now being more her life, or leave and pursue her and pursue her artistic ambitions. And on their second date, the, the, you have to decide if the couple should watch The Shawshank Redemption or Mr. Holland's Opus. <laughs> and if they watch Shawshank Redemption, what happens is that Sarah gets very inspired by the idea of freedom. And she uh, no longer wants to be caged at IBM where she works. And she quits her job and she becomes a musician. And she's if you watch Mr. Holland's Opus... Yeah, the, it's about longevity. It's and about longevity. And also, uh, she gets at least this character's vision or opinion of Greg Holland in that movie... Somebody wanted to be wanted to be a musician, but ultimately, as someone who is a teacher and sees all these other musicians pass by him, she decides that's not the life for her, and she takes the promotion at the software company. Now, on either of those paths, you can still find a happy ending, but the realities of the two characters' lives is completely different. So, that's a very somewhat of a literal connection to the movies. Sometimes it'll be it'll be oh, an ex-boyfriend re recommended that movie, and that ends up causing some friction between the two of them. We've tried to extrapolate. In sort of a butterfly effect kind of way, is many different causes and effects of how watching a movie can Im impact you and send you on a different trajectory. Yeah, I mean, it's not just sliding doors; it's right. every other psychological factor. Totally, yeah. But we have been, yeah, very inspired by sliding doors, by Run Lola Run, like any of that sort of like, yeah, different universes being opened up. Uh, and right, right while we were making this part of the show, Bandersnatch had just hit. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. So that also, that kind of branching structure is also, yeah, one one of many influences on it. Uh, so that's the that's the romance story. There's there's a a family oriented story which is called a grown up's guide to flying. Okay. And it it is inspired by Peter Pan in, in its various incarnations. It imagines that a these, this family who lives above the video store, the, uh, the there's an older sibling and a younger sibling, Jean and Kelly, which we, we we thought uh, <laughs> would be appropriate. And Jean, uh, the younger sibling, is it's Jean's birthday, and every year on Jean's birthday. Kelly creates a scavenger hunt throughout the store for Jean to follow. And I don't want to give too much away, but as you go through the scavenger hunt, or a series of scavenger hunts, 
you realize that Gene is going through a complicated life transition and the scavenger hunt is helping Gene process that and you, the audience, are put in, the, in that vantage point. Um, yeah, I think that's about all I'll say about that because a sure, lot of the sure. impact is sort of those discoveries. And the last story, which is called Yesterday's Heroes, is a, a science fiction-inspired story uh, with has some fantasy elements as well. And it's about um, the mythos of why it is that this video store is trapped in one specific day in 1999, kind of a la Groundhog Day. Uh, and it involves, uh, yeah, some mystical forces of the land that this tree, or the, the, this, this magical tree that the store was built upon the site of. And uh, you, you unlock the mysteries of the store as you go deeper into the store and deeper into the narrative and you get to access the basement of Queen Video and some unexpected things happen from there. Oh. So all three of those experiences are happening simultaneously, different groups of people sharing the space of the store. And we wanted to set it up like that, which is very different than a traditional escape room, because we wanted to recreate the feeling of different groups of people, different groups of friends, all coexisting, browsing in a video store. So everything we've done is kind of built built to suit that. I'm struggling with the the logistics more than anything else, just the, the sheer volume of activity. That's mostly what I end up doing in my in my creative life. <laughs> the projects that I seem to be drawn to is grappling with the logistics in one way or another. Um, I've never worked on a project like this, so we're so really inventing as we go. But um, the audience is going to be such a key element of it, so we'll learn a lot as as we start putting people through it. Um, it's trying to yeah figure out the most pleasing way to have different groups of people exist in the same space, but each be on their own journey. Right. And do you take into account the possibility of uh, as with a record store, there are going to be things that people just won't want to talk about or won't like. I mean, how do you steer that sort of thing? Our, so the we, we've we've put out um, descriptions of each of each story, including like recommended movie references. Like if you like these movies, this might be for you. Each one has a genre and a rating system, but they're all sort of yeah, playfully created. And our our clerks too in in you know video or record store fashion will will be the recommenders and will and will try to make sure that the experience speaks to people's tastes as well as possible. But it's also um, these are group experiences, and so in order to solve the puzzles properly, you need to work well as a team so it, it, ideally I think to to best make your way through it you'd have a range of people with a range of tastes and skill sets yeah see I would be terrible at these because I would only have my point of view I've, sure. I've, I've honed that over the decades too like you it's know a, I'm, I'm sure I'm right it's I'm, a very interesting psychological experiment to watch good friends go through it to watch married couples go through it it really uh, yeah because it it's built for collaboration. Yeah. And it creates an imaginary stress, right? Because you have to solve puzzles. There's a clock ticking generally. Yeah. But I just find those things so fascinating. It's, it's the same reason we go to see horror movies, the same reason we ride roller coasters, right? And you get the vicarious experience where sure. you're not really going to get hurt. There's always a way out. You don't have to, you don't have to put yourself in any more uh, danger is not sure. even the right word, but uh, suspense than you want. Yeah. And I should say for this experience, uh, no one is locked in anywhere. Yeah, you mentioned the, yeah. I find really interesting. So uh, we wanted to we wanted to borrow the sort of puzzle solving aspect from escape rooms, but give people more free access to roam around the store. So instead, the as opposed to getting out of the room, the rewards for solving the puzzles is unlocking the next piece of the story. Because we're a theater company, and, right. and we you know we tell we tell narratives for a living. That's what we're driven to do. We're really trying to bring. A, more of a story element and an emotional impact element to the escape room form which uh, there's other escape rooms where there is a, there, there is a narrative component but that tends to be pretty backgrounded and we're really we've really begun with the story and try to see can we can we tell these stories using the architecture of a video store w- with a puzzle component but the, the stories are very much driving it yeah I mean it's got to be about it's got to be about narrative it's gotta, sure. there has to be an objective but there also has to be a reason to keep following the people yeah. involved I just I, they, yeah. yeah escape rooms never really did it for me well I, we're very much trying to create this as uh, having aspects of an escape room but being being the gateway drug for people who may may have stayed away from those experiences feeling it's not for them again because uh, because story is really driving the bus yeah, yeah. there's also a sort of a meta meta or an art story that happens throughout the day so I mentioned that we're open like a store uh, every hour in between those escape room experiences, the story of the clerks who work at the store plays out in these little vignettes, scenes, and songs. And so depending on what hour of the day you're there, you'll see 
different interactions between the people who work at the store. And if you come back at another time, you'll see a different a different scene, and then those piece together into a larger a larger canvas. Okay. And has there is there a script already written for people who come in and actually want to rent a tape? Uh, I mean, there's there's scenarios that we're sort of preparing for and and finding in-world language to explain to people that what we have available are in-store rentals. Right. So uh, these rentals happen within the walls of the store and they happen to you and pull you inside the tapes in ways you would not have expected. Yeah. But it's amazing how many people have wanted to come in and just rent these VHS tapes. Um, the novelty of it seems to be really attracting people. Um, yeah. Whereas I think Queen Video, before it closed, was not seeing that much foot traffic and that's why it closed. But the moment it goes away, people become nostalgic for it. Yeah. Oh, that. I, I wrote a piece about it the week before. Sure. I guess it was two weeks before it closed, but I went in. Did you interview Howie? I did, yeah. yeah. And uh, he said they were at their break-even point. So sure. it wasn't that it was dying. It was that it was about to be sure. unsustainable. Yeah. Um, and it made sense for him to, to get out when he got out. And I, I you know, I respect sure. the decision. But, yeah, it's one of those things that just changes the character of your relationship to or not the character of the relationship with the neighbor, it changes your relationship to the space right because yeah. it's it's like a library closing it's like a museum closing sure. these are things that you take for granted and suddenly this repository which i mean i'm you know i'm in a privileged position i don't actually need the video stores that often you're pretty you're pretty well equipped looking around this room yeah yeah but i still bought half a dozen discs that minute and it's just like oh i need this and sure. this. i might never see this again and that impulse to not just collect, but to hoard yeah. and to keep this stuff alive. I mean, I have no illusions. Nothing here is a one of a kind. All this stuff is available somewhere, and I'm sure they're out there on pirate sites and streaming sites. Uh, if if the world, you know, if this if this studio burns down, I can replace almost everything. Sure. But it's the feeling of having it, right? Yeah, I think that getting back to high fidelity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. there's things. The the media and the culture that we that that is important to us, it existing as tactile, tangible items, to me has always been very important. That's why I have, way you know, way too many movies. I mean, the building block of this project is that I had a collection of a couple hundred VHS tapes that I collected in in middle school and high school, working at a video store as Blockbuster started selling off their VHS. They made their way to my basement, yeah. and when I went to university in two thousand and four, from Toronto to Halifax. I thought it was really important that I bring these VHS tapes with me. So I had this giant suitcase that I filled with probably close to 100 VHS tapes. It was definitely of a size and weight that you wouldn't be able to fly with now. Yeah, those things are not light. Uh, but I thought it was important to bring it with me and then moved it to three different apartments during during my time in Halifax and brought it back to Toronto, probably watching maybe two of those tapes in that time. <laughs> uh, but you could see them. But I could see them. They were, they, they were something comforting about having them there. And all these years later, they've become the building blocks of the story. So there was some faded reason why why they had to make that journey. Yeah, and I yeah. acquired some more in Halifax that are yeah now part of the collection. And they are their own story. Exactly. Yeah, ultimately. And yeah. that's, yeah, that's the thing about High Fidelity. That's the thing about the lists in High Fidelity. The lists become totems. Yes. Right? The fact that you can memorize them and spit them out and the fact that Rob knows what his top five relationships were yeah. even though he doesn't value them. Totally. He didn't learn anything but he knows what they were. And that to him justifies having them and there's something about it being limited to that five and so like when yeah, yeah. when things go really south with laura that you know that bumps someone else off the list like it's yeah it's a it's a tight it's a tight container yeah um there's this other project that i'm working on that outside the marsh is going to be doing in the fall also about old movies it's our 10-year anniversary and so we're doing these two projects as sort of a, a larger thing that we're calling the the popcorn double feature the the project in the fall is is a play called the flick and it's it's a little bit more of a traditional piece of theater comparative to to the tape escape um it's going to be at streetcar crow's nest okay and it's about an old movie theater going through the transition from film to digital having one of the last project project film projectors in the county being being replaced and the central character in that story named avery is obsessed with film and is on this crusade to try to stop the movie theater from going film to digital because you think it's fundamentally important and then when you screen a movie that was shot on film on digital you're actually not watching the movie and there's many complex theories about that and the metaphor of that kind of relates to the transitional moment these characters are in as three adolescents working at this movie theater um but it, it's really made me think about just the act of movie theaters in general 
stream the way that streaming is made is is taking away that collective experience. Yeah, and even just going to any movie theater and watching watching a film with a group feels like a more and more of a rarefied experience. Yeah, I keep having this conversation over and over with people. I'm just having it this morning. We're having it the other day. It's all about the sense that we've reached a point, and we have, where home replication is pretty good. I mean, I mean, we're we're in a room with a 120 inch screen and yeah. a 2K projector and Dolby Atmos sound, and it's it's better than some screens in sure. the city. Not a lot, but some. And I can understand how people with just decent 4K televisions can convince themselves that you know, oh, Booksmart will look fine. Sure, and it will. Yeah, but that's changing. <laughs> Not just the experience of going to see movies, but the experience of the industry's regard for movies, where now, when book, because Booksmart underperformed, not that it was ever going to have a $50 million opening weekend, but because it didn't do as well as whatever superhero movie was out that week, it's perceived as a failure. It's yeah. just like, no, it's the kind of movie people watch at home. Totally. It doesn't mean we have to stop making them, and it doesn't mean we should stop putting them in theaters, because sometimes something connects, and it will be worth it. Uh, I was just down at the Lightbox today, and... Uh, Joanna Hogg's film The Souvenir is still playing three shows a day which is miraculous I thought wow. that thing was going to last for I love it it's a masterpiece yeah. but I thought it had a week tops sure. because it's such a hard sell and it's a complex emotional drama about a woman's artistic consciousness forming in the 80s and you know how do you well but I could go see Thanos right. you know kill the Avengers Why? how do you how do you sell anything that isn't uh, big enough to justify the $20 ticket price. Yeah. And the answer is, you just keep making the movies and help people find them wherever they find them. But yeah, seeing a movie in a the theater, there's, there's still... It's how I... It's my career. I, I can't imagine that going away. I think that even if home technology is getting more and more to the point of, of rivaling a movie theater, I guess it just depends up for the individual on whether or not they find watching something in the presence of others... A positive or a negative to the experience. I have to believe, as a theater maker, my my whole <laughs> my whole career and belief system is based around the idea that when you experience something as a collective, that adds to its power. That you could have the best home theater in the world, but that 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 shouldn't be a rival for watching something with a couple hundred people uh, and having that having that collective response. And especially if you're all discovering it together. Yeah, I mean, live theater too. That's just. There's an electricity. There's a sure. there's a breathing that happens. Movies are, you know, I, I have made this argument to other people. It's like, well, if you can't make the movie today, go tomorrow. It'll still be the same. It's, right. It's going to be just as good. Sure. Or it'll be Transformers Five. But whatever it is, it will still yeah. be the thing it is. Those things are fixed in time. But yeah, there's nothing like seeing a movie or a piece of theater or a concert, right? I mean, to get back to the music yeah. aspect of it, it's all about. Being with people who want the same thing you do, mm. right, and who and ha- yeah, and who have shared sense and tastes or diversity of tastes, which also makes make, makes for an, an interesting experience. I think because <clears throat> because it's never been easier to s- sit at home and watch Netflix, it raises the bar on what we're looking for in our live experiences, and that's sort of our our raison d'etre outside the march as an immersive theater company is we're looking to offer what only live experiences can offer, and so the kind of experience that the tape escape will offer where you're going to be roaming through multiple floors of this video store, discovering secret areas behind panels, having to work collaboratively, interacting with video and audio and live performance. It's fundamentally only something that could happen as a live thing. Screen screen time could never replicate it. And similarly, something like the flick, we're redesigning not just the theater, but the entirety of Crow's its lobby, some of the exterior to feel like an old movie theater because mm. it, I really believe that yeah the environment and the package where you experience something changes your relationship with the work. Oh yeah, are you building a concession stand? Very much. Well, there already is a, a bar in their lobby, but and we're gonna remake it so you can get popcorn and chocolate and yeah everything you everything you'd want. The sort of it's important. It is important. The, the sort of running joke in the flick and one of the things I love about it is that so it's all staged in the movie theater in between movies basically so you never see any customers okay. you're watching these clerks eternally sweep up popcorn it's like they're Vladimir and Astragon from Waiting for Godot but in a but in a movie theater sweeping up popcorn and I remember that from working in a movie theater that's so much of what you do yeah uh, and so the audience being able to buy popcorn during the show means that probably the ushers at the theater are going to find themselves in a, in a in a similar experience but it yeah it felt important to to bring that into it I'm sure um 
that smell of flavacol, that stuff, the, yeah. the, the oil chunk that sure. you put in, that's that's my prostine madeleine, sadly. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It, it, it takes you there. Yeah. Uh, so is there anything specifically, this is the final question of the podcast sure. is always the same, is there anything specifically of high fidelity that you've borrowed or lifted or stolen or been inspired by and incorporated into your own creative DNA? Or, I mean, I, I go back to or, organizing or, organizing things in terms of lists. lists. But you were doing it before then. Well, you know, what does he say? What what came at the beginning of the movie? What came first, the, the music or the misery? I, I don't know. I, I think... I guess I did have a capacity to create lists, and that's why I, I became pretty obsessed with high fidelity. But also, then seeing that experience become the organizing principle of someone's life, whether enabled or empowered me to, to take that further. So yeah. I'm constantly making lists of the culture I want to consume, but also of yeah, I, I tend to organize even more so. I think the history of my life in, in, into those into those categories and associate one with the other, like uh, specifically uh, the the period of my life from from my you know my teens into my early 20s where i consumed a, a large amount of movies like so many so many experiences from my life i connect to the movie i was watching around that time and, right. I, and I think i got that compulsion from from watching high fidelity well, at least that's healthy yeah I, I think so it's more of an indexing system yeah let, 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 let's go with that There's, i have a lot of old notebooks at home that I found recently where some of it yeah some of that stuff's transcribed down and yeah just trying to categorize the world yeah to assign meaning rather than just be random sure I like that I, I wish it had worked for me I also think in terms of um, contrast and, and how pieces of pop culture be they music or movies that could seem trite in one context are exactly what you need in another context like the end of the film where Jack Jack Black, you know, you think he's going to sing death metal, and so he sings "Let's Let's Get It On" and the cathartic release of that. Uh, I think as an artistic construction is is something I've borrowed a couple of times. That, yeah, uh, that the unexpected appearance of something sweet when you don't think that's where it's going is uh, yeah, simple and beautiful, and, and something I feel inspired by. My thanks to Mitchell Cushman who's probably rearranging VHS cases right now for the tape escape in advance of its opening this Thursday, July 4th. If you're in Toronto over the summer and you're in any way nostalgic for the smell of old video cassettes, you should definitely check that out. Thanks also to Suzanne Cheriton. She knows what she did. Mitchell's not on Twitter, but you can find the show at Outside the March, all one word, and on the web at outsidethemarch.ca. And you can find High Fidelity on Blu-ray and DVD from Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps, it truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.